you did a fantastic job researching this because my schedule's been very busy. Oh. <laughs> and I did not do as much research for this one as I normally do. But don't worry. This is going to be a fantastic episode. Don't mm. worry. I, I know just enough that's going to get me over and I'm going to get the belt very quickly. Also, <laughs> to I look fantastic. That's so cool. it, do- it doesn't make a difference how much preparation I have or, or skill set for this particular podcast. Oh. But I feel like I'm... I'm doing okay. Also, I'm very vascular too. <laughs> and if we need to run through this as fast as possible and I just like tater one of you and then <laughs> like run a little bit faster and then just splash on you awkwardly, I'll, I'll do that too just so this podcast comes out appropriately. Well, welcome to the 30th episode of Tim Bell Pod. I am Nick Alexander, live from my studio in Burbank, California. And by, <laughs> and by studio, I do mean apartment. Ed, 3,000 miles away in the Manning Cave, I'm joined as always by Micah J. Loving. Hello, hello, hello. As well as pro wrestler, podcaster, comedian, the man scout in the mirror, Jake Manning. The one and the only. (laughs) Michael Jackson references, really, Nick? Yeah. I I, I thought I was going to get something more, but uh, I thought I was getting like a Blade Runner reference or something like that, like, like Ridley Scott. I mean, I just saw Blade Runner 2049, so, like, I would have been, like, on point. That would have been great. But Nick Nick wants to reference a four-hour pedophile documentary. That's cool. <laughs> Today, we are talking about one of the biggest names in pro wrestling history, a guy that looked like Vince McMahon drew his perfect wrestler, a guy who clean-pinned Hulk Hogan. He was the ultimate warrior. dun 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 I don't know if that was right. <laughs> no, that, I, the survey says incorrect. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was more of a dun. I joined it later in the, in the song. <laughs> okay, all right. That's, that's I thought it was more like a dun, 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 dun. Wait, I'm thinking No, that's it. It's like Metallica. That's fucking Metallica. So you guys corrected me and then both fucked up. All right, James Brian Helwig, later legally Warrior, was born June 16th, 1959 in Crawfordsville. It sounds made up, Crawfordsville, Indiana. Yeah, Crawfordsville. Crawfordsville. You've never been to Crawfordsville, Indiana? There's probably <laughs> one in every state. Oh, it's, it's, I think it's like not far from Indianapolis, but I've, I know I've seen exits for, for Crawfordsville multiple times <laughs> driving to Chicago. <laughs> I thought you were just being sarcastic, but you really knew what the hell. No, I knew where this was, I, and I, like I said, I'm very ill prepared for this podcast. Like I was gonna look up like Google Maps, and I could tell, like, oh yeah, I remember going up here. I actually stayed. I've probably stayed in Crawfordsville, to be really quite honest. If I would have done just a little bit more research, but that's okay. I'm just going by on my good looks and huge biceps right now on this podcast. <laughs> on this day, this is one of the weirdest ones I fucking found. Like as you said, Warrior was born on June 16th, 1959. On this very same day, George Reeves, a.k.a. Do you, who, anybody know who George Reeves is? Nah. Superman. Fucking Superman. Uh. Jake nails it. On this day, George Reeves committed suicide. Oh, no. And I don't want to say that reincarnation's real. And when George Reeves passed on, then his spirit moved into a little baby. And he grew up to be a living Superman. I don't want to say that's true. But you know what? It should be because the opening promo that Vince would have done for it would have been amazing. That is a good warrior origin story, to be honest. (laughs) 
All right, so he was the oldest of five children and was raised by just his mother and then later his stepdad after his father left the family when he was just 12. And here's some interesting facts about, I guess, his genetics that will come into play later. His father died at 57, and his grandfather died at just 52. And that's scary to me because my mom's dad died very young, and my biological father has been dead to me since I was born. Hi-oh. Nick held up his hand for a high five for anyone who could see. <laughs> That's even weirder on the podcast format, but it's even weirder in Lord, the fact that you're yeah. on a screen yeah. in my studio yeah. right now. Yeah. <laughs> Warrior was into bodybuilding since he was 11 years old, and once he was all grown up, he moved to Atlanta, Georgia, and began competing in a number of bodybuilding contests. His first one was in Florida, where he placed fifth. Uh, he also took fifth in 1981's AAU Collegiate Mr. America. And uh, the following year, he became Mr. Georgia. And to become Mr. Georgia, you not only have to have a great build, you also have to tell the most women that their incest baby is their fault. Ooh, you're doing that edgy Georgia comedy while you're <laughs> sitting in your liberal paradise yeah. of L.A. As, as you're still probably paying rent for that apartment in Atlanta you used to live in. <laughs> But either way, Warrior was always pretty jacked and has some really decent finishes in bodybuilding. At least he had decent finishes in bodybuilding and not uh, in professional uh, wrestling. <laughs> in 85, he was in California training for a bodybuilding contest. And it was there he, Garland Donahoe, Mark Miller, Steve Borden, who the kids know as Sting, were invited to become pro wrestlers. After getting trained by Red Bastine and Rick Bassman, Jim Justice Helwig, Garland, Mark, and Sting formed Power Team USA. And it was only after 10 hours of training that Helwig says that they sent out flyers, him and Sting, to get some work. <laughs> 10 fucking hours of work. I, I was just going to say, I'm, <laughs> gl I'm glad you chimed in there because when I saw like Red Bastine had a hand in training the Ultimate Warrior and Sting, I was like, wait a minute, Red Bastine? <laughs> is like a well-respected, very good professional wrestler. Like anybody that probably would have been trained by Red Bastine would have been pretty good. And so the fact that he only had 10 hours with them makes a lot more sense. <laughs> yeah. In late 1985, Sting and Warrior headed to Memphis and the CWA to wrestle as the Freedom Fighters, where you can see Sting and Warrior without face paint, wearing Letterman jackets and talking very calm. It is fucked up. The whole time that Warrior's doing anything, he's smiling. Promo, in the ring, he's just smiling awkwardly. And it's as Nick said, it's, it's fucking, it's just weird. They'd debut as super vanilla baby faces, but they'd soon have to turn hill because the crowds weren't into them because they kind of sucked at this point. Neither Sting or Warrior had even a fraction of the time needed to put on a passable match, so they paired them up with Dutch Mantel, who actually coached them during matches from the outside. Well, keep in mind, this is during the time of the Road Warriors being like the hottest act in professional wrestling in the world. So like every territory was trying to have their own version of the road warriors and the road warriors were not like this these polished and refined characters as well so they're like okay well i know they're green but they're like like the road warriors aren't nick bockwinkle and then all of a sudden like oh fuck uh. the, the road warriors look like nick bockwinkle compared to uh, steve borden and old jim hellwig here 
Jim Cornette tells a great story about this, how uh, I think the first time he learned of Hellwig, he was on, on the same show, and I think it was around the fourth match, and then all of a sudden, like, the heels pile out of the locker rooms and the face pile out of the locker rooms on each respective sides of the bleachers, and Cornette's like, what the fuck's going on? It's going to be a good match. It's going to be a good match. And then it turns out that it was Jerry Lawler and Bill Dundee doing a 30-minute Broadway with Helwig and Sting. But it wasn't good. It was the fact that they would have to carry them for 30 minutes. And after 11 minutes, they just started doing the same shit over because Dundee and Lawler couldn't think of anything else to do that wouldn't be a total fucking disaster with them. <laughs> Which is funny because Jerry the King Lawler is the master <laughs> At just like Jerry. finding somebody and making them the mummy <laughs> and then like putting on a main event match with him. So they're struggling to put matches together with these guys. They are not good because I could wrestle Jerry the King Lawler in my fucking sleep. <laughs> and Cornette emphasized your point 100%. It was like, if Lawler can't do it, then what the fuck is the point? By early 86, the team of Jim and Steve had moved to Mid-South, and they changed their name to the Blade Runners. Warrior became Blade Runner Rock, and Borden became Blade Runner Sting. And as Jake mentioned with the Road Warriors, they were a bit of a knockoff of the Road Warriors, both kind of being named after 80s movies, with both teams leaving a playoff Howard the Duck on the table. And if you need a visual idea, you you should look them up for sure, because just the visual is amazing. But if you can't right now, it's kind of like picture the warlord and then imagine the warlord fucking Robert Smith of the Cure and then they have a baby and that's totally what it is. After spending some time working in the territory, continuing to learn, uh, Jim Ross said they left the territory because it was physically too intense for them, which probably really means Bill Watts was being a dick. Well, Mid-South was a tough fucking territory, mostly because of the drives, because, you know, it'd be like, six hours here then the next night it's eight hours then the next night it's like 10 and it's like all through the night Mm -hmm. and guys were complaining like this entire week like we're doing six eight hour ten hour drives every single night we got to get here somehow and a lot of guys got coke habits just so they could make the town (laughs) and then bill was just like no don't do drugs and people like how the hell are we going to stay awake (laughs) and bill watts's remedy for that situation was we'll just Get out on the side of the road and start doing calisthenics. That'll wake you up. Instead of doing coke and then driving down the road, (laughs) stop your forward progress and just get a workout in. That'll wake you up so you can drive a little further. And I got to put over, as I was doing research for this, the Blade Runner's music video is only about 75 seconds. But I got to say, I have a list of my top three favorite homoerotic artistic endeavors I've ever seen. (laughs) And uh, as of right now, it's Pumping Iron with Arnold and Lou Ferrigno. I'm sure we've all seen the bodybuilding documentary. Then we got Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man with Mickey Rourke and Don Johnson. Just action homoeroticism to the max. Beautiful. And then there's Queen's music video for I Want to Break Free. Now, after seeing the Blade Runner's music video, I really think that it might beat and push out Harley Davidson and the Marlboro Man. But you guys are going to have to go on YouTube and watch it for yourself to see. But it, it, is, it is a gorgeous homoerotic thing. Michael, you've already <laughs> got a substandard list. You have not mentioned any of the fabulous ones, music videos from <laughs> Memphis. That's a good point. There's, uh, there's like eight of them, and they are, I guarantee, top everything that you had just listed <laughs> off and that whole little rant right there. I don't know when another time we're going to talk about the fabulous one music videos because I'm pretty sure Stan Lane's an immortal and he'll live forever. <laughs>
In 86, Warrior debuted in Dallas in WCCW, where he'd finally commit to his face paint and become the Dingo Warrior, which again, kind of still in from the Road Warriors. Initially, Warrior broke into the territory as a hill managed by Gary Hart, but he had such a look that fans started to cheer him, with a full turn kind of coming when Dingo Warrior would begin to work against Rick Rude. Warrior would ditch Gary Hart for Percy Pringle, but since he was still getting cheered, he'd soon make a permanent career move to a babyface after turning on fellow stable member Buzz Sawyer. Warrior then formed a tag team with Lance Von Erich, and on November 17th of 86, Warrior and Von Erich won the WCWA Tag Team Championship, holding it until December 1st when they lost the titles to Al Madrid and Brian Adias. And I think it needs to be said that uh, the Dingo Warrior fighting in uh, Texas is fighting from Queens, New York. <laughs> Can we? I, I don't think there's any explanation for this. The fucking Dingo Warrior, which you would automatically assume, hey, put him from Australia. Dingo ate my baby, blah, blah, blah. But no, let's put him from fucking Queens, New York. I, I, I never saw any explanation for that. And one quick little side story I have to tell that's one of the weird roommate stories of how I got to know one of my good friends, Casey, is early in Casey's life, they used to live in Texas. And Casey always had a story he used to tell that they went to a show front row. And if you know, back then, the little Warriors thing began. And there were kids come up to the ring and they would try to get autographs and Warrior would carry fucking children to the ring. And they really started working that gimmick over. And I don't think it's on tape, but uh, they went to a show and one of my best friends and ex-roommate Casey got picked up by the fucking Ultimate Warrior. And I, I will never be more jealous of that. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. 1987, Warrior began competing for the WCWA Texas Heavyweight Championship, winning the title from Bob Bratley February that year. And it was while in Warrior was in Texas that George Scott, who used to be Vince's right-hand man, began helping out with some booking in WCCW. Upon seeing the potential in Warrior, George gave Vince McMahon a call. And after a tryout match in Texas, it was off to New York for the still very green Dingo Warrior. We can't forget that he almost got the big Van Vader gimmick in Japan as well. Warrior asked Fritz for more money, turned him down, and just as he was going to go do the Vader gimmick, Vince gave him a call and said, no, buddy, come here. Warrior began appearing on house shows in June of 87, initially billed as the Dingo Warrior, but Vince McMahon did not know what a Dingo Warrior was. He didn't like it, so he wanted to change it. Bruce Pritchard said that since modern-day Warrior Kerry Von Erich was a thing, and then you had the Road Warriors, he couldn't just be Warrior, he had to be the Ultimate Warrior. And I would like to chime in that uh, Guerrero means warrior in Spanish. So Kayfabe, he's fucking related to Eddie Guerrero, Chavo, and Hector. So I think that's a cool connection. <laughs> and not Kayfabe, Ultimo Guerrero is actually just a ripoff <laughs> of the Ultimate Warrior. Warrior ran through some enhancement talent like Steve Lombardi, Barry Horowitz, and Mike Sharp before making his TV debut October 25th on an episode of Wrestling Challenge where he met Terry Gibbs. He walked to the ring, which is weird, but he did hop up on the apron and shake the ropes. He had his face paint on, so you can really see the baby steps starting to get taken. He squashes Terry in about two minutes, and Terry, I thought, did a great job of making Warrior look good. And one of the great scenes laid here is Heenan immediately rips into him with, he ain't all there. And then if his body looks that good and he's doing that much work, then he didn't have time for education. So the kid <laughs> looks great, but he probably can't read or write. 
After several months of defeating good brother job guys, Warrior started putting all the pieces together. He started using his iconic sprinting to the ring entrance, paired with his awesome music that Micah got wrong earlier. It was so simple. Run to the ring, be a madman, shake the ropes, be a ball of energy and your tassels flapping and your face paint. And Warrior was over with pretty much every crowd before he even stepped into the ring. And in all the shoot interviews, Warrior wants to make you abundantly fucking clear that the crazy running to the entrance was all my idea. So, <laughs> I mean, yeah, of all the things, all the pride in that. And actually, one of the many jobbers that he ran through was George South, who actually wrestled the Warrior eight times. Ooh. And um, famously, there's that uh, picture of the Ultimate Warrior on the cover of, I believe, the Hasbro Ring, where he's clotheslining somebody. That is actually George South's back <laughs> of his head. What the fuck? So that Mattel collector's ring that's got the <laughs> ultimate war, that's the back of George South's head. And actually, I found that picture in a magazine, scanned that picture, and now George sells it as 8x10s. <laughs> so a little piece of interesting information. And I, and I talked to George prior to this podcast. It's pr- probably basically the only real research I did for this entire podcast. And George still has PTSD from the clotheslines <laughs> that he got from Ultimate Warrior. And he just talked about how the Warrior had the hardest clothesline of all time. Wow, of all time. Of all time. And George had to wrestle him eight times. And the first time he did it, it was one of those tapings where they did multiple shows. And so Warrior was going to wrestle multiple times. So there was this guy, Bob Emery. I believe he was like a guy that was trained at Nelson Royals. He was a big, jacked-up dude. He was a very sizable man, and he got put in there with Warrior, and Warrior dislocated his shoulder. Jesus. (laughs) And George was like, oh, crap. I got to wrestle Warrior in the next tape. Uh, What's he going to do to me if he he dislocated the shoulder of this Herculean man? What do you think he's going to do with average old George South? And so... When the warrior threw the clothesline, George put his hands up to protect his face. Because warrior, as George would say, he just wouldn't like hit you in the chest. He would just ball his his fist up as hard as he could, which makes his basically like forearm and entire bicep and everything like a like a baseball bat. And he would just <laughs> swing it in the direction of your head. So George is just getting his hands up to protect his face because he's not trying to hit you in the safe areas of your chest or any meaty part of your body. No, he's swinging for your face. So George puts his hands up and, and warriors obviously clothes lines them in the forearms. When they get to the back, the warrior starts screaming at George and saying, George's forearms hurt the ultimate warrior's arm. <laughs> Jesus. And, and George is just like, how can I hurt you? You are, you've got a million dollar body. You mean to tell me my forearms hurt <laughs> you? And, he just he yelled and he walked off and he belittled George in front of everybody. And then, of course, George had to wrestle him uh, multiple times. And what George would say is like he the warrior would listen a little bit. Like he was a dick, but he would listen a little bit. So George's bright idea was as far as like taking that clothesline is like, well, if I can figure out a way to blow him up before I take that clothesline. So George would be like, hey, uh, buddy, um, maybe uh, before you give me the clothesline, how about I duck one? And, and his thought process was that Warrior would swing so hard for the the one that George ducked out of the way of, he wouldn't have enough energy to completely murder him when he finally did hit him. That's some job guy psychology <laughs> that's like next level right there. 
But George was like, was telling me the reason why he wrestled him eight times was probably because George's ring gear was so plain. Because George always had black, black trunks or just red trunks, and that's it. And Warrior always had pastels. It was like during the era of like, you know, guys wearing black trunks. You can't wrestle guys wearing black trunks or even blue trunks. They have to have different color tights. So George always had a different color. And it just happened to be the complete opposite color that the Ultimate Warrior was always wearing. And that's why he wrestled him so many times. I think my favorite all-time jobber squash match is now Warrior running out immediately like he always does. He beats the shit out of the Brooklyn Brawler, pins him in 20 seconds. He throws him outside of the ring and then kind of kick pushes him underneath the ring so that he's totally out of sight and gone. And then he immediately books it and runs back into the back. And it's just like, I beat him. uh, I made him disappear. And now I'm gone. In early 1988, Warrior got into his first real WWF feud with Hercules. On the February 7th, 1988 airing of Wrestling Challenge, Hercules was DQ'd for using his still chain. Warrior then grabbed a hold of the chain, and while they were doing tug-of-war over it, the chain snapped. This led to a match at WrestleMania 4 that wasn't part of that year's themed tournament. I actually watched their uh, MSG match, too, which is actually not... It's actually, I'll say, decent. It's kind of surprising. Okay. It's better than their WrestleMania one. And I think it's also worth saying that this starts the the Heenan feud because Hercules was part of the Heenan family at this time. So very first match, Heenan's insulting Warrior. And then very first feud, he's part of Heenan's crew. So right then, it's just Warrior versus Heenan. Heenan is who Warrior would spend the summer of 88 wrestling against around the house show loop. And the match that made it to TV was Warrior winning with a sleeper and then stuffing Bobby into a weasel suit. Bobby sold the whole thing amazingly, but apparently Bobby kind of hated working with Warrior because he was kind of reckless in the ring. When he wakes up out of the sleeper and has the realization that he's in the suit, it's like some fucking, for, for wrestling, the acting is like top tier. It's you know, just like, huh, huh, huh? And then he freaks out. And I didn't know this. I knew about the Heenan uh, weasel suit matches, but the reason this all got started is because Heenan got a big confidence boost when he beat Coco Beware two times in a row. <laughs> so then he signed open contracts, and Warrior was one of the dudes who signed up. Well, in this weasel suit match, or matches, I should say, um, goes back to something that Nick did not know about prior to a couple podcasts ago where he was talking about how wrestlers recycle angles. Uh, the weasel suit matches were something that Heenan did in AWA against Greg Gunn. And Greg was a little bit smaller in stature, so a match with Bobby Heenan could be a little bit more realistic and, and there'd be a little bit more drama to it than obviously all the ones with Warrior where Warrior is just beating the shit out of Bobby <laughs> and then Bobby just trying to survive. But like the weasel suit matches were, were a way for a baby face to get over because of limited ability or having trouble getting over or connecting with the people. So there's some sort of emotional connection because there's all this emotional hatred towards Bobby Heenan and people feel a certain way about him and they like seeing him be embarrassed. Just goes to show that Bobby was willing to put his body on the line being a company guy to get a guy over. Jamie, can you edit that out and then edit in that that was the first time they ever wrestled in a weasel suit match <laughs> at SummerSlam 88 August 29th Brutus Beefcake was supposed to take on Honky Tonk Man but he got injured so Honky Tonk cut a promo with Mean Gene and he said he'll take on anyone he doesn't even care who it is he doesn't want to know as the greatest intercontinental champion of all time he'll beat anyone 
So Honky walked out to the ring, he grabbed a mic, explained that ring rats aren't real people, so it doesn't matter if you kill one. Then he says, get me someone out here to wrestle. I don't care who it is. 27 seconds later, Ultimate Warrior ended Honky's 454-day title run and won his first title in WWF, the Intercontinental Championship. And you gotta give it to Gorilla Monsoon, because when Warriors music hits, who everyone fucking knows in the universe, Gorilla Monsoon yells out, Somebody's music! (laughs) (laughs) I love in this match that Warrior, he bumped around Honky a couple of times, but then when he, he being Warrior, hit the ropes to go for his splash, Honky was not, like, perpendicular. Like, he was parallel. So, like, by the time he hit the ropes, like, where he left him, Honky wouldn't have been in a proper position for that splash. But Honky, being the true fucking professional that he is, turned his body clockwise (laughs) so that way he could be perpendicular so that way the Warrior could hit the splash as soon as he came off the ropes. Also, a fun little thing about this match... For a while, I was the Full Impact Pro Florida Heritage Champion. Whoa. And I won that belt, and I rarely ever defended it because FIP didn't run a whole heck of a lot of shows. And I think the few times that I had the belt, I I lost matches, but they were non-title matches. (laughs) And I had a ridiculously long title reign. Ooh, honky worthy. Yeah, it was honky worthy. (laughs) And then they decided they were going to put it on UHA Nation, who would later become Apollo Crews. I was like, okay, this guy is Jack, and and I know he can do some stuff, but they said, go have a match with him. And I'm like, okay, well, I look like shit compared to this guy. And I'm just like, can I just redo the Honky Tonk Man thing? <laughs> so I basically came out, and I cut a promo talking about me being the greatest Florida Heritage Champion <laughs> of all time, and I'm willing to put it on the line. And instead of hitting me with a, a, just a regular splash, he did a standing shooting star. Yeah. So he basically kind of reenacted the <laughs> whole match and it worked just as well. But just so. updated for modern wrestling spots. Yeah, yeah, just <laughs> updated. But like he was just like he and he wanted like, no, oh, what do you want to do? I'm like, I want to do Honky Tonk <laughs> Ultimate Warrior, like because I think it makes the most sense. I like. You're on your on your way up. You're amazing. And we should put you over super fucking strong <laughs> because I was probably my chunkiest I had been in professional wrestling. I look like crap. Let's not drag this out any further. Let's let's put this over strong and let's make you a big deal right away. So Warrior would then be team captain at the second ever Survivor Series in 88. Warrior's team of Brutus Beefcake, Sam Houston, the Blue Blazer, and Jim Brunzel beat Honky Tonk Man's team of Ron Bass, Danny Davis, Greg Valentine, and Bat News Brown, with Warrior being the sole survivor, pinning Ron Bass and Greg Valentine to win the match for his team. Weird random trivia, uh, when Bad News Brown was in Stampede, he called himself the Ultimate Warrior, so respect to the first fucking original Ultimate oh, no. Warrior, Bad News Brown. It's now time for our weekly segment, which I'm going to start calling Please put some fucking respect on their name where Micah doesn't know someone and Jake yells I know Jumpin' Jim Brenzel, you piece of shit. No, no. Do you know who <laughs> Sam Houston is? Uh, who is Sam Houston, Jake? Oh, that's... oh, no, wait, wait. Sorry, sorry. Let me do it right. This fucking piece of shit Sam Houston <laughs> comes out in here and he's like, he's I don't know, his muscles look like, I don't know, sagging titty stuff. And then I'm like, oh, God, what did you like get pulled in off the hot dog stand? And I don't know. Jake? You shut your goddamn mouth and put some respect on Sam Houston's name, okay? Because Sam Houston is Jake the Snake Roberts' brother, 
and was actually married to Baby Doll and actually had a good little run at Jim Crockett Promotions, but he got a ton of heat for marrying Baby Doll. And then he went into WWF and he just didn't have like the body they were looking for there, but he was a tremendous worker. Actually, there's a couple of really good job matches where George South wrestled Sam Houston. And like I said, Sam Houston wasn't, he was kind of lanky, had more of a, like a Stevie Richards body. And it wasn't <laughs> fashionable to have a Stevie Richards body, which I think is only like now it's fashionable to have a Stevie <laughs> Richards body. And in one of his matches, he actually press slammed George South. Because George was like, why don't you press slam me in, in the middle of a job match? So here's this guy who's not like Ultimate Warrior or one of the bigger guys, and he's just press slamming a job guy on TV, and it looked pretty <laughs> impressive. So just because you know George was a pro. And, of course, George would gladly take a press slam from Sam Houston and not the Ultimate Warrior, who would basically grab you by the throat and then grab you by the gonads and squeeze both as hard as possible. But, um, yeah, Sam Houston, tremendous, tremendous worker, never got his due, didn't quite have the body that – he needed at the time but if he would have came a few years later like if he would have came in the early 90s probably would have had a little bit different career also too he might have had a attitude issue or i don't know like i don't know really who's to blame as far as like him and baby doll like i think baby doll got some heat and then some of that residual heat ended up on sam a little bit too because that was i think a big problem is when they got married baby doll was doing this big angle where she was either with flair or with dusty and because they got married during a time of kayfabe, <laughs> it, oh, no. and it made all it, wow. it and it made all the newspapers and like oh man like you're ruining an angle, so like it was one of those things they they made the announcement in the paper when she was supposed oh. to be with somebody on TV, so like I think there was a little bit of heat that way and then Sam kind of got the residual heat from that yeah you know, great worker probably a little too. A little too early for his time as far as his body type, but uh, I thought he was a tremendous worker, and it's always been super cool to me every time I've talked to him. That's so awesome. Put some goddamn respect on fucking <laughs> Sam Houston's name. Right, writing it down. Wait, can I, here, can I get It's sad to hear that they got heat for getting married, which is kind of like Sheik and Duggan, but without the cocaine. Yeah, it was, it was very similar to that. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure there was some cocaine and pot yeah, right, involved, right. but I mean... They don't put that in marriage announcements. No. <laughs> As 1989 began, Warrior entered a feud with Ravishing Rick Rude over the Intercontinental title, which we kind of covered Warrior and Rick Rude's feud in Rick's episode. This feud started at the 89 Royal Rumble when the two met in a super pose down where Rude and Warrior had a pose off before Rude attacked Warrior with his flex bar. This led to a championship match at WrestleMania 5 where Rude pinned Warrior with Bobby Heenan holding down Warrior's feet from the outside. Good to continue that storyline. You, 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 Heenan's fucking with him from the beginning, and then it, we reached the point where he cost him an actual title. They'd have a rematch at 89's SummerSlam, which is a good match, aside from when Warrior should have blatantly been DQ'd when he hit Rude with the IC title. <laughs> Me, you, and Jesse Ventura agree. <laughs> This match ends when Piper comes out distracting Rude uh, with a little mooning, and this allows Warrior to take over, win the match, and become a two-time Intercontinental Champion. And the one thing I did notice when I rewatched it for this podcast, other than our Rick Rude episode, on the spot when Piper shows his pants butt, which isn't really his butt, it's the dumbest fucking <laughs> thing ever, Rude gets up there, Warrior grabs him for a German suplex, and if you watch it, Warrior basically grabs Rude, falls backward, and slams Rude's ass directly onto his face. 
he just smushes the living shit out of him. It is brutal if you watch the replay, but yeah, it, it's because Warriors just can't do a German suplex. Aside from feuding with Rude over the summer of 89, Warrior also worked with Andre the Giant headlining a ton of house shows. A lot of these matches are crazy short, mostly due to an aging Andre and Warrior's greenness, but this was a huge step for Warrior as wins over Andre the Giant would give anyone main event legitimacy. There is a very noteworthy uh, point in Warriors history here, though. The only clean fucking pin as the real deal push to the max Ultimate Warrior is Andre pinning Warrior with basically a butt splash in Cessnia, France, which is right by Grenoble. So, you know, they were doing it for Andre. But yeah, it's on YouTube. Andre pinning Warrior clean. It's it's kind of amazing to see, even if the video quality is god-awful. Well, and these are the famous matches where Warrior would hit the ropes like a million miles per hour. And, of course, Andre having you know trouble standing and having back problems and knee issues, obviously, from supporting all that weight. And Warrior just not taking any of that consideration and just moving as fast as possible and knocking Andre around. And then Andre just... Reminding people, I'm Andre, I will do what I fucking want to. Just having him like hit the ropes and then Andre just sticking his fist out and having Warrior run right into it. He's um, learning. Yeah, th- that famous story. So every every time I see those two pairings, I just think about Andre just calmly putting his fist out <laughs> and putting it right into Warrior's face. One of the weirdest kind of... You have a wrestling video game and you create your own match type match that I really found to be fun as fuck is Ultimate Warrior and Hacksaw Jim Duggan versus Rick Rude and Andre the Giant with the commentating team of Tony Schiavone and Lord Alfred fucking Hayes. It's one of those combinations that you never thought existed, and it shouldn't be fun, but Warrior and Duggan do comedy spots back and forth. Warrior shakes the ropes to get Duggan fired up, so Duggan holds the ropes and then he gets fired up. Basically, I'm pretty fucking sure that Lord Alfred Hayes is drunk off his fucking ass more than normal. I know when I say that, you say, uh, well, he's already drunk, but more than normal because it's basically they're doing comedy spots and Lord Alfred Hayes just kind of calls action like, <laughs> I really like that. Do that again. I think it's 6-6-89, that tag match. It's, it's probably like 12 minutes long, but it's fun as shit. For the record, Hayes is not drunk. He's uh, pickled. <laughs> <laughs> good point. Good point. The Warrior-Andre feud would end at 89 Survivor Series, where the two captain opposing teams in the main event, the Ultimate Warriors of Warrior, Jim Neidhart, and the Rockers, took on the Heenan family of Bobby, Haku, Arn Anderson, and Andre the Giant. Right off the bat, Warrior flies into the ring, clotheslines Andre out of the ring, eliminating him by countout. I assume that was kind of how a lot of their house show matches went. Oh, yeah. House show matches are just littered with count outs, double disqualifications, you know, because you don't do the clean pin until it's all over and said. This is definitely the era of like, oh, we're too close to Phoenix, brother. You know, like you rarely is it ever a clean finish anywhere. In this match, Bobby Heenan pins Marty Jannetty. <laughs> Thank you. I, I had that note and I bold faced the shit out of it. <laughs> I was like, oh, my God, he pinned Mark. I mean, Haku beats him up, and he, of course, comes in, stomps him a bunch, and gets the pin. But, yeah, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, Nick. I was so fucking like, oh, my God, this is happening. Eventually, Warrior is left to go two-on-one with Arn and Bobby. Warrior press slams and splashes Arn, leaving just him and Bobby. And we get some classic Cowardly Hill Heenan and some classic Warrior tossing the shit out of him. 
Bobby gets hit by a huge shoulder tackle, big splash, and for the second year in a row, Warrior is the sole survivor and winner for his team at Survivor Series. And a great little cherry on top. Uh, he elim- eliminates Heenan. Heenan is walking back to the entrance, and Warrior freaks out and does his run back and knocks Heenan over as he runs back, and Heenan takes another <laughs> bump like the champ that he is. I literally said out loud, what a dick. <laughs> like, there was just <laughs> no reason to do that. <laughs> it, it got me so good. I was like, oh, my God, they, that's a fucking cherry on top. That's, that's good stuff. So by 1990, Warrior was creeping up on Hulk Hogan for the biggest wrestling star in the world. The pops he was getting couldn't be ignored, nor could the amount of merch he was selling, as he was arguably the most over-wrestler on the roster. This launched a on-screen rivalry with Hogan, as well as kind of a backstage one. The feud was kicked off at the 1990 Royal Rumble. As far as the Royal Rumble match, it is loaded. Uh, You obviously have Warrior and Hogan, but then you have Bret Hart, Macho Man, Piper, Rude, Perfect, Andre in his last ever Royal Rumble, Dusty Rhodes, Shawn Michaels, Snooka, Jake the Snake, the Immortal Red Rooster, and surviving for 44 (laughs) minutes and 47 seconds, the Million Dollar Man, Ted DiBiase. Does the guy who goes 45 minutes get paid the same as the guy who gets eliminated in like 38 seconds? Yeah, more or less sometimes. <laughs> I mean, it might it might be different at, at this time, but I got the same rate I normally do. Well, I might, might, might have got a little bit more when I did the Northeast Wrestling Over the Top Rumble where I came in at number one and I ended up winning. I think I got a little bit more for that one yeah. because it was like it was wasn't quite an hour, but it was close to it. So I think I got a little extra. That's up to the discretion of the promoter. I'm sure Ted might have got a, a little little extra. Somebody like that, that crucial to the company, probably got a little extra couple hundo in, in that pay envelope. Yeah. Warrior hits the ring at number 21 and immediately eliminates our boy, Dano Bravo. About 10 minutes later, Warrior did eliminate Million Dollar Man. Which, when Warrior clotheslines DiBiase, it eliminates him. The crowd loses their fucking mind. Yeah. It was just a testament to how much Ted was hated back then. But when Warrior hits him out, I mean, they erupt. Then at number 25, world champ Hulk Hogan enters. He tosses Snuka and soon after Haku. Meanwhile, Warrior tosses Tito Santana and Shawn Michaels about 10 seconds after HBK entered. Hogan eliminated WWE Hall of Famer Honky Tonk Man. And after that, Warrior tossed the model. Then he turns around to discover that there's only one man left standing in the Royal Rumble, and it was Hulk Hogan. And we get our first ever showdown between the two. They trade some shoves, they do the crisscross rope run, and then they finally hit each other with a double clothesline, putting them both out. So we get this little tease, because since there were still four people left in the Royal Rumble, they would come in and kind of disrupt everything. It's so good. Even the direction, because WWF camera shots and direction back then could sometimes be shit. And even now, it's kind of shit at times. But back then, just the looks of Warrior's face, Hogan's face, when they turn that corner and stare each other down, like, it's it's fucking electric. You say it's shit, but it was like light years ahead of anything else that was going on at the fucking time. Uh, Japan was pretty fucking good. <sighs> not, not at that time. I'm, 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 no, I'm telling, I'm <laughs> like, I will hold up, like... Compare it to Memphis, compare it to Southwest, compare it to like Florida, even Jim Crocker promotions. I love all those places. They had great fucking wrestling. But as far as presenting 
professional wrestling and that facial expression. I'll give you that, that yeah. exchange. Yeah. It was light years ahead of everybody else. And yeah, I know you want to be old Dave Meltzer over there and say, "Well, Japan did this," <laughs> but it really did. I mean, Japan was good. I mean, I'm not I'm not disputing the fact, but I, I mean, I look back at some stuff, you know, from all Japan. It wasn't that great. I, I would say New Japan was pretty good. At the time, but Dude. I I don't know so much about the all Japan mixes. Really, Kabashi and Kawada and all them during then. I think it's just as comparable. I think it's uh, I think it's I think it's a lateral move from WWF at the time. We'll agree to kind of kind of disagree, uh, or we could just agree that you're wrong. How about that? <laughs> oh. So the next two people into the Royal Rumble were Barbarian and Rick Rude, who the two of them together had Warrior almost over. When Hulk runs in with a big clothesline, sending Warrior to the outside, eliminating him, technically drawing the first blood between the two in the feud. Then Hogan won, whatever. The Royal Rumble showdown and the following buzz it created led to the ultimate showdown at WrestleMania 6 in Toronto. With Hulk Hogan's WWF World Heavyweight Championship and Warrior's Intercontinental Championship on the line. I'm a big fan of the contract signing leading up to this. Most people know the Andre Hogan one, but this one's decent because Hogan credits hard training, prayers, and vitamins as he always does, knocking the greatest hits out of the fucking park. And Warrior does his best freshman year philosophy major, drunk off his fucking ass in the dorm room rant. And then at the end of it, Hogan just goes, sign. (laughs) Because he doesn't know what else to say to that shit. See, once again, Jerry Lawler couldn't figure out what to do with him in the ring, and he's this tremendous worker and wrestler. You get Hulk Hogan, one of the best talkers of all fucking time, and Warrior does what he does talking, and the best talker of all time is like, fuck it, sign. I can't fucking do it. So Hogan and Andre is always considered, you know, like the biggest match ever, I guess. Yeah. Do you think warriors horrible relationship with wwe for you know a couple decades influenced that at all because this match was also icon versus icon i mean two enormous baby faces wrestling it has to be equal to hogan and andre you think or no pritchard talks about on their podcast how it didn't do the money it did less pay-per-view vibes than hogan savage oh wow and they kicked ass at the sky dome but i mean it didn't it didn't do what they thought it was going to do, which I was kind of surprised to hear. Well, part of the reason they felt the problem with that was it was babyface, babyface. You know, good guy versus good guy. It was going to split the audience. And you didn't have that, like, emotional investment. Like, ah, oh, kind of like, I'd like to see the match. But he, it's like a situation of like, well, this guy could win or this guy can win. Either way, I'm happy. Where, like, if you have somebody like, oh, I really hope they don't put the title on this guy or like, Ooh, I really want to see this guy win the title. Mm-hmm. That's kind of essentially how pro wrestling works and operates a little bit. Yeah, you don't want a situation of, Oh, I'd be happy whoever wins. And that's, I think that's kind of what was going on here is people like if they were to pick their two favorites in WWF at the time, it'd be warrior and, and Hulk. So those two fighting each other, it's like, yeah, cool. Great. Uh, whoever wins, is whatever it's not the situation of like we are passing the torch to warrior and we're moving forward with him and this is a, a transition this is a, a shift much like andre and hulk was and it was also interesting because even with andre andre was a face leading up to it uh kind of the same with savage they were good buds but then they have the whole angle of them turning on each other so then that creates the friction 
But Warrior, they kind of have that, but neither of them really turns heel. So it's still a big climactic babyface versus babyface explosion. I remember when I was a kid, I fucking loved both of them. And I always knew I was more of a Hogan guy because when Hogan lost, I was devastated and I wasn't pumped that Warrior won. So that I was, was that. fucking ecstatic. <laughs> yeah, and see, there were those guys that were like so fucking pro Ultimate Warrior that it was like, yeah, <laughs> you know, like it Jake was, just shook the ropes really well. Yeah, like it was like I, I heard guys like saying like I was such an Ultimate Warrior guy and fuck Hulk Hogan and it was it, like they were so passionate that way, but like Hulk still had his loyal fans because you kind of grew up with him and we were still eight years old <laughs> essentially like man i grew up with him and i'm still eight i still have a lot more childhood <laughs> that i want hulk hogan in yeah i mean I, I was still i was i mean hulk was my number two and warrior was my fucking number one i was through the roof on warrior but i still remember having that huge immediate jolt when i found out because i remember i didn't watch it live i think i got the vhs or saw it on superstars afterwards but i remember being like holy fuck and realizing that I was more of a Warrior fan than a Hogan fan, probably at the moment of learning who won that match. But if you take a look at what Hulk did for Goldberg years later, that was very much a pass-the-torch moment. It was obviously a guy who was limited but super over with the crowd. You had a clear-cut heel. You had clear-cut heat on Hogan. And we're going to put this guy over strong and think about the reaction to that match and how much business that did at least in the george dome it would have done a lot better if it was a pay-per-view but that's <laughs> that's, a whole they, they, that's that's a whole different podcast that they discuss <laughs> but like and you look at the way that hulk you know set up that match you compare it to the way that hulk set up his match with with warrior of really putting somebody over and passing the torch now like i said it's always been said that hulk was trying to pass pass the torch and it didn't work out i think that's mostly hindsight but he definitely gave his best effort to pass the torch that night the actual match, the entire thing is basically Hogan and Warrior trading offense to make them seem as equal as possible as that was the story they were trying to tell. We get that long test of strength, which uh, uh, is that great gif of where it looks like Warrior is blowing Hogan. You didn't even have to say that once I heard your... <laughs> <laughs> do, you, do you think maybe that's why Warrior's homophobia... <laughs> grew so strong in his later years like people showing him that clip over and over again like hey what do you think of this and then he's just like not gay man like i feel like that like like that clip just strengthened his hatred i think you are correct and i have another theory of another particular angle that adds to that too so but we'll get there hogan kicks out of a warrior splash during this match which i think he was the first one to ever do so then hulk hulks up and when you think Hogan is about to make his normal comeback for the win, he misses his leg drop. Warrior hits Hogan with another splash. And Ultimate Warrior wins his first WWF championship. Thank you, Pat Patterson, for booking a really good actual fucking match between those two. Are you not going to give Hulk any fucking credit? No, they're both. Oh, are you not going to give Warrior any credit? No. <laughs> None? None. 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 0.0? 0. 0.0. 0. Wow, he, he, he was led by the fucking hand. This is tough. I mean, how would Giant Gonzalez done in that match? Not as good. If Hogan had to put the fucking <laughs> rocket ship on Giant Gonzalez, he would have gave him a goddamn match. 
One last thing. Go on YouTube. Look up Last Call with Scott Hall and Larry Zabisco, and you get the two of them kind of – I think they're sober, but it's them doing commentary on this match, and Larry Zabisco has never watched Hulk Hogan versus the Ultimate Warrior, and it's him – I mean, I think he's telling the truth because I think at a certain point he was like, fuck Vince, I'll never do anything for him. And Scott Hall shows his enthusiasm for, like, the true kind of mark he was when he was 12 and probably wanted to do wrestling, but it's a really fun, like, 25 minutes, and – Check it out on YouTube. And there's actually like a good story that Pat Patterson tells that after the match, like Pat sat in the crowd during the whole match, watched the whole thing. He went to the back and, you know, just to tell like Hulk great match. And then he went to go see a warrior. And when he found warrior, warrior had the belt like right, like at his feet and the warrior had his head down. And as soon as like Pat walked in, warrior raised his head and when he raised his head, his he was crying. He had tears in his eyes because oh. he, he was just emotionally moved about what had just happened. So I always think of that when, when people do talk shit about the Warriors, especially myself. <laughs> um, five minutes ago. Yeah, five minutes ago. <laughs> that there, there, there were moments like that where he recognized the spot he was put in and how big and how important those things were. Now, his behavior up into that was crazy like even notably uh, he would go into catering and grab all these cookies grab them and then crunch them into his hand to it was like powder and, and dust and and basically like nothing like like powder <laughs> cookies then he would pull them to his nose and smell them and then throw them away because he couldn't eat them but he just wanted to like ingest something of cookies that was calorie free I heard the story similar to that. It's probably, he probably did the same shit where he would buy a bag of cookies at the grocery store, open them, and then throw them in the trash can. Yeah, which is a real <laughs> fucking dick move, especially when Vince is paid for catering. This person <laughs> probably spent all morning making these cookies. Now, obviously, not everybody in the roster can eat cookies, but some of that catering's for like you know Teamsters and people setting up the light rigging, and they probably want a cookie. And the people uh, that he bought them from the grocery store donate them to a fucking food charity or no, some shit just throws them away <laughs> throws them away yeah that's that's the thing like there's these moments in his story that are very emotionally moving in in this particular match in wrestlemania and everybody having such high hopes and you know like you're gonna be the guy now and you're gonna lead the way and that's not necessarily what happened after wrestlemania warrior successfully defended the championship against haku mr perfect ted DiBiase. At 1990's SummerSlam, he met Rick Rude in a still cage match, which is still one of my favorite Warrior matches. They always talk about how Warrior's gates, and part of the reason they eventually handed off is because his gates weren't as good. But when you're comparing him to fucking Hulk Hogan, of course they're going to be good, but they're not going to be what it was. But I wanted to ask Jake if you thought, like, pairing Hogan with a guy that he's already had a feud with, if that kind of hurt the excitement of his run because he's already seen him do the feud with the Intercontinental or... Well, you need good matches. Here, here's here's a problem that always fucking happens when indie promotions put the belt on people. And this happened with like my title run in PWX. And it's, it's a theory that I've formulated for quite some time. When you put the belt on somebody, you know, you have, you have somebody who's who gets that belt is usually somebody who's having these really great matches. And then you have this really engaging chase for the belt and you do a little bit of storyline stuff, but not too much. It's all about this chase. And then the person that, you know, we, you've dawned to be your next champion, 
you've done him to be your next champion. And the way he got over with the crowd is by having good matches, having clean finishes, probably going over. Most of the time, some people, you know, get over by losing, me being an example. (laughs) But, you know, most people, it's winning matches and, and you're getting there and having, but either way, having clean finishes and having great matches. And that's what puts you in a position of becoming a champion. The first thing that always fucking happens is they all of a sudden start doing angles with the belt with that person and it's like a fuck finish or this person runs in or this person thing he retains but he's kind of but he didn't get a clean victory and like it always fucking happens and i always scream at people like okay you put the belt on him feed him somebody who he can just beat feed him so that way he can get some successful title defenses but guys that are going to give him good matches but guys that you have no problem feeding in there that can lose right away what ends up happening is they, they jump into an angle and this and then do this and this as opposed to just feeding him like a couple of good victories right away and give him good matches because how he got there was because of good matches. And what do you do when you put the belt on him and that thing that got him over? You do angles with him <laughs> and do fuck finishes and do like run-ins and, and a multitude of different things and you don't give him a clear-cut victory. It reminds me of like shit when you're up in a, say, uh, any football, basketball, what you did to get up by 20 points, you fucking destroyed them. Yeah, you just stop and you pull back and you play defense and then they come back or some weird shit like that. It's it's happened tons of times. Yeah, and that's exactly what it is. But like what they're doing here is like, okay, Rick Rude can give the Ultimate Warrior the best possible match and no problem with him losing, but he's already beat him for the IC title. So there's that sense of like, could he beat him again? So it's not so clear cut that he could lose. So there is a little bit of he he's vulnerable against this guy. So could he take the WWF title away like he took away the IC title away? And But you know you're going to get a good match out of Rude. So that's why they're booking it. And so that's another thing about Warrior. When he's got the belt and you need to give a good feud and good matches, you look around the roster and it's a short look around. <laughs> that was another point I had. It's been talked about how... By this point, Vince had pretty much bought up all the territories. Hogan had beaten most of the monsters. So at this point, there wasn't too much, too many monsters to feed him to look like a bigger monster. But yeah. also, too, you, you wrestling Warrior was a different proposition than somebody wrestling Hulk. Hulk knew how, how to work. Obviously, now you have flipped the whole formula. The guy who is not the champion has to be the workhorse and has to be the worker and know how to lead through this thing. So... It's better to have the guy who has your belt being the worker, and then you just feed monsters at him that are, you know, not that great or substandard workers, and he's going to make them look great. But finding guys who are fantastic in the ring to make this one particular guy look good, there's the supply and demand issue comes up. Yeah, that was my thinking on it. Once you beat Hulk Hogan at WrestleMania, what the hell do you do? Like, after the Avengers beat. Thanos with the Infinity Gauntlet. <laughs> if the next twenty minutes of the movie would have been them also beating like Doctor Doom, you would have been like, "All right, I guess that's cool." But <laughs> he already already did the thing, and I guess it's not fair because in wrestling you can't just end the movie. You know. Here's my nerd analogy: When one of my favorite movie directors, Steven Soderbergh, won Best Picture at the Sundance Film Festival for his very first fucking picture, Sex Lies and Videotape, he got up on stage and his acceptance speech for the Best Picture at Sundance was. Well, I guess it's all downhill from here. Yeah. And you see that a lot with today in wrestling. Like, before WrestleMania this year, 
people loved Becky Lynch. Like, they, we were all about Becky Lynch. The internet was, like, the most over-fucking wrestler of all time. She won the title at WrestleMania, and then literally the next night on Raw, the internet's like, I'm tired of her, you know? <laughs> it's, it's like, once you climb the mountain, it is literally downhill. But also, too, you need people to work. I mean, what would they put uh, Becky Lynch <laughs> what, in there what with? What are you going to do? What are you going to do? Put La- you put Lacey Evans in there. Yeah. She, she's, I mean, she's great and all, and she's fantastic. She's going to be a wonderful and tremendous wrestler. But that's that's what we lead with. Yeah. yeah. And they but, had their issues right off the bat. And, and the fact that it was a three-way was, was tough. Like, it should have just been Becky versus Ronda or just Becky and Charlotte. And then you had Ronda who could come in as the next challenger. You're too best challengers you just beat at wrestlemania so warrior was then inserted into a feud between the legion of doom and demolition leading to survivor series with the perfect team of mr perfect and demolition facing off against the warriors ultimate warrior lod and carrie von eric in this match you have demolition a ripoff of the road warriors ultimate warrior a ripoff of the road warriors <laughs> imagine if someone made the ultimate man scout became the man and then you were on his team for survivor series or imagine a comedy bill where dennis leary and bill hicks were on oh his god <laughs> and louis ck uh, dennis steals from both that's what i'm saying <laughs> This match is super fast-paced. It's like a Mr. Perfect highlight reel. Uh, <laughs> yeah. it, it comes down to Warrior and Perfect, and after a flying shoulder, a uh, big splash. For the third straight year, Warrior was the sole survivor and winner for his team. This is the year they did the big grand finale match of survival. So that same night, following the Copley Gooker segment, Warrior teamed up with Hogan and Tito Santana to beat the surviving hills of Hercules, Paul Roma, Rick Martel, Ted DiBiase, and the Warlord. The best part of this match is Hulk gets hit with a superplex splash combo. (laughs) Completely no-sells it. And then eliminates Roma with a clothesline. (laughs) What the fuck? I remember uh, that was one of my early wrestling memories was Hercules and Paul Roma's finish move was like a superplex and a fucking top rope splash. Yeah. I was like, oh my God, how do people live through that shit? And then Hogan's like, did, did a flea touch me? Yeah. Also, this is the first ever Survivor Series I ever rented or watched. So every year following this, I was so confused that they didn't do the big finale thing. <laughs> yeah, right. Like for like eight Survivor Series, I was like, why are they doing it? Uh, actually, this Survivor Series is available uh, on How This Get Booked archives. We <laughs> oh, cover shit. this uh, in great detail. So. <laughs> so Nick started off his first rented thing with a big old piece of shit. <laughs> in January of 1991, the ultimate puke faced <laughs> the evil turncoat Sergeant Slaughter at the Royal Rumble. Now as over as Warrior was as a face, you had Sergeant Slaughter matching him on the other side of things by turning on America and becoming... Top three biggest hills of all time. I mean, when you pair him up with a murderous, you know, genocidal dictator, I mean, you know, the the cheap eats kind of, you know, coming in waves. During their match, Sensational Sherry comes down to the ring. A warrior had previously turned down her and Macho King for a title shot, so they were out for revenge. Warrior chases her to the back, but when he does, Macho Man was waiting in the shadows to attack Warrior before running back. 
watching this, I was surprised how good the surprise of Savage coming out of the shadows and beating the shit out of the warrior was. It really gave me an, oh, fuck. It was a super was good it? shot. It was, he was completely in the shadows. Yeah, it, I mean, they nailed the shit out of it, man. Wasn't there, like, an interaction with Sherry and the warrior where she was, like, almost trying to seduce him a little bit? Yeah. And, and then, like, the, war- and the warrior just goes, <laughs> Like, that's, that's, like, top five memories of the warrior. <laughs> Just he was uh, screaming out his boner to not get yeah, him. Yeah, uh, yeah, because because he smells the cookies, he screams out his boners. <laughs> Once Warrior takes back over the match, Sherry comes back out. She gets in the ring actually, and then she's kind of press slam tossed out of it on top of Macho Man who's standing out outside. That's when Sarge hits Warrior from behind. Warrior falls where he's draped over uh, the middle rope. And when he does, Macho Man pops him in the head with his royal scepter. Sarge pins Warrior and ends his WWF championship reign. And an early WWF show where the crowd is basically in the Attitude Era lets out a good 10 to 15 second bullshit, bullshit chant. It was one of those moments where you're like, this is is 91 WWF. They're really chanting bullshit? So this was all a lead up to WrestleMania 7 where he and Savage put their careers on the line. With Miss Elizabeth ringside, Macho King faced off against Ultimate Warrior. And this is important to note because Elizabeth and Macho had split up during the breakup of the Mega Powers and had been a couple for years on screen. Just the emotion involved. When I rewatched this, I'm not going to fucking lie. The way they built it up, I cried. I mean, goddamn. Seeing the reactions of the women and everybody else in the crowd, just like legitimately, those aren't plants. Those are real people losing their shit at fake people, having a a reunion in the ring that's been built up for years and years. You got Savage hitting top rope elbow drops, five of them. Warrior kicks out after that. Savage's face on the drama that's fucking amazing. The way Bobby opens the match while Gorilla's talking about the stakes. Bobby's just staring off screen and you don't know what the fuck's going on. And then it cuts to the shot of Elizabeth because Bobby set up the shot of revealing that Elizabeth was there. So right then the emotional factor kicks into gear. I was, I don't know, man, this, this match got to me so fucking good. Clearly Savage put it all together Yeah, and Savage leaving spots in the match for warrior to do like warrior shit like going is this my destiny when he looks up at the heavens and he's like how 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 yeah like (laughs) leaving spots in there for warrior just to be weird and understanding that character and just you know good guy bad guy you think you think about this match and and there's far more emotion you could have had like if you had a heel hulk hogan at wrestlemania 6 could we have had this much drama as well but at the same time, too, I think it, this was, you know, knowing that this is coming off the heel of the WrestleMania six match and it didn't come off quite as well. And knowing what we know about Savage and his relationship with Hulk, like this is clearly Savage having a chip on his fucking shoulder and letting him know, like, oh, OK, well, you had a good match with him, motherfucker. Um, <laughs> and, and people are, are so so about the match. I'm going to have a fucking match that people can remember <laughs> for fucking ever because i'm randy fucking savage motherfucker and i'm 10 times better than you are god damn right that is the one thing i'll say re-watching warrior stuff yeah he might be a little botchy and fuck stuff up and have to bounce off the same ropes three times before he gets the right angle on the lariat that he wants to hit you on but in, in the emotional moments man he could really nail this shit well he knew what his character was 
nobody else did, but he fucking did. <laughs> so. Good point. The ending is so weird because they do like the shoulder tackle spot. And I think it accidentally sent Macho Man to the outside because the ending of this match is Warrior pulling Macho Man back in from the outside and then just pinning him. He does it three times. I just, I think, I bet, I think a more aware wrestler would have given him the big splash because that spot was so awkward. You now, know? see, the one thing that, uh, given uh, Pritchard some credit, they talk about how. I think Conrad mentions that uh, fuck Warrior for being disrespectful to Savage like that. And Pritchard chimes in like very confidently saying, no, Savage probably wanted that finish. He probably wanted to be beat down by exhaustion. The only way he was going to lose is if his body couldn't take it anymore. And the Warrior character standing on top of him because when Savage was going to win, he was going to win big. And when he was going to lose, he was going to lose big. And that's what makes Elizabeth coming in mean all that much more it's it's from the fucking lowest lows and then bringing them up to the highest of highs elizabeth does come in because after the match sherry attacks macho man while he's still down which draws in elizabeth who comes in and clears her out and then miss elizabeth and macho man reunite in a super emotional wrestling moment that maybe we'll get a little more into this when we cover macho man from there, Warrior would feud with The Undertaker after Undertaker and Paul Bearer locked Warrior in a coffin, which, you know, solid reason to fight someone. <laughs> and then a bunch of jabronis hit it with sledgehammers and uh, crowbars and shit, and they do CPR on him, and it's like, oh, there's a dead body. And then everybody's, like, flabbergasted, but it's like, oh, it's just probably a dead body on screen, but it's, <laughs> it's okay. Oh, I remember watching this as a child. It <laughs> was fucking... traumatic. It was fucking traumatic this led to jake the snake roberts jumping into the feud offering to give warrior the knowledge of the dark side uh, in order to prep warrior to get some revenge on undertaker and then jake turned on him because you never trust a snake and this set up a feud between warrior and jake the snake that would never actually take place there's a good 17 minute youtube video of the entire short jake the snake ultimate warrior feud and the weird little vignettes they do with putting Warrior in the coffin, Warrior digging his own grave in a cemetery, Jake burying him up to his neck and putting a skull in front of his fucking face to scare at, and then Warrior getting locked in a room with a bunch of snakes, and then a cobra comes out and bites him, and then Warrior busts through the door, and then that's the reveal that um, that Jake was with Undertaker and Paul Bearer the whole time. It's some of the best, weirdest vignettes that I've seen in a while. I just watched this today before we recorded, and I was kind of blown away. It's like, man, this shit needs to be seen more. Oh, I saw the shit live <laughs> as a child. I remember... God, fuck! <laughs> as, as a kid, WWE Superstars, and I think I've said this before multiple times, like it would be on some Sunday mornings, and we had to leave Sunday school immediately for me to catch it. And I remember coming home from Sunday school and seeing this... <laughs> Where the warrior like crashes through the door. That's where the Jake the Snake and being a kid that was already like terrified of snakes, like this was horrific. And then going back and listening to the Bruce Pritchard podcast where they talked about they had a snake guy there and one of the snakes got loose in the studio and they couldn't fucking find it. And like Bruce had to hide up in the fucking rafters <laughs> while this snake was rolling around in there and just talking about how weird snake handlers are because they're fucking weird goddamn people. So it was around this point that Warrior and Vince McMahon were arguing over money and scheduling. On July 10th of 91, Warrior sent a letter to Vince McMahon saying he wanted 
$550,000 for performing at WrestleMania 7, and he wanted a guaranteed number of working days, travel accommodations, and a higher percentage of his merch shells. It was released. You could read the entire thing. It's, it's pretty bonkers. So the WWF apparently responded by agreeing to the half million for WrestleMania 7, as well as his higher royalty rate and promising that he'd have a more limited schedule. In reality, it was Vince just trying to pacify Warrior so he'd still take part in the SummerSlam main event, after which Warrior was handed a letter from Vince McMahon saying that Warrior was suspended effective immediately. Warrior refused the suspension and left WWF. You can't fire me, I quit. Yeah, pretty much. Well, and the thing is, too, if if it was a different guy that like people actually liked, like some of the wrestlers would be like, yeah, man, you go get your money. Like if Hulk was like, hey, I think Vince, you're shorting me on my payoffs WrestleMania. Everybody that was on like a Hulk house show, they made money. And if Hulk stood up and said like, hey, I feel like I need a larger piece of that, that pie and I, I, I want some accommodations, like some of the guys would probably be like, yeah, man, you know, you could change the locker room with us. We know that, you know, you're with us and you're a top guy and, you know, you go get your money, Hulk. And I, I think there's a, a lot more of that now where people are like, go get your money. But because, like, war had just rubbed everybody the wrong way, and people are like, who the fuck is this guy? <laughs> you know? So it's it's that sense of, like, if war probably endeared himself to the guys and was, was harder on, on Vince, people might respect him a little bit more because he was a dick to everybody. Like, people are like, no, fuck this guy, and fuck this guy universally. And also, too, it emboldened Vince McMahon, because, like, nobody in this fucking locker room likes him. So I'm not going to fucking acquiesce to you, but if it was, like, a locker room leader, like, if Hulk would have done that, like, wow, you know, Hulk's going to he'll go by my back, he'll, he'll get a lot of the boys to turn against me. Okay, all right, just keep it quiet, here it is. But, like, as far as, like, Warrior, no, fuck you, nobody likes you. And that was something, when I, when I talked to George about Warrior today, George said something where you can always tell how the wrestlers feel about you when a guy walks in the locker room. And Warrior didn't even walk in the locker room with the guys. <laughs> he had his own dressing room. And George was telling me this, this one story, and I don't think this is true, but apparently like Warrior made like the ring crew guys carry around some weights on the on the ring truck so he could get a workout in when he got to the town. <laughs> Instead of just finding a gym like everybody else, like, no, keep these weights on there so I can work out when I get here and get a good pump in. Like, like George made it sound like it was a whole gym that was a truck, which I, I don't think is necessarily correct. Uh, but he, they probably kept some dumbbells and some, like maybe a barbell with some weights and stuff like that. I could see that being a bit more real realistic. And I could see Warrior being like, well, I'm the champion. You want me to look good, right? We got to have something on here for me to get a good pump before I go out there and wrestle every night. And just being a ring crew guy and having to like carry around warriors working. It's like, dude, just go to a fucking gym early in the day and call it a day. You know, now if somebody bucked this, like if Roman Reigns is like, no, I should get more money and I should get this. Or if John Cena at his peak was demanding more money, there might be a contingent of people like, yeah, go get your money. But because Warrior was such an asshole, it's very easy for Vince to be like, no, I don't have to acquiesce (laughs) to you. And people are going to be on my side. The whole theme of all the Warriors stuff, I was kind of like, man, if he wouldn't have been a dick here, it probably would have worked out for him. Yeah, that's the thing. He, he <laughs> might, it might have worked out. So next episode, will Warrior return to the WWF? Will Warrior join WCW? 
what things will warriors say about the gay community? Find out next episode of Tim Bell Pod. Thanks for listening to this episode. If it sounded weird, it's because I didn't get my preamp for my fancy microphone. I'm using a USB one. I will try to fix it as soon as possible. If you want to throw a little money our way, we are Tim Bell Pod on Patreon. We are Tim Bell Pod on all the social medias. Micah is jtrotter27 on Twitter. Jake is Manscout Manning on all the social medias. And I am Nico Lessa on social media. No, I just might leave and uh, come back as somebody else. <laughs> Ooh.